You're not supposed to argue with me. I argue with myself. This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it can't be complained about. By my friend and yours, John Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is Friday, December 28th, 2012. This is episode number 100. This is our final episode. This is the very last episode of Hypercritical. We would like to thank our sponsors, MailChimp, Infinite Refrigerator, and Shutterstock for making this show possible. Bandwidth for December has been sponsored by Igloo, your digital workplace. You can give updates, have discussions, and share files with your team all in one place. Sign up and get started at igloosoftware.com slash 5 by 5 Well, here we are, last, last very last episode. 100, of, 100 episodes after this one will be in the can. That's true. Not 100 episodes with me, but 100 episodes in the feed. Was there only, only one without you, maybe? Two. Two. Well, you didn't let us put the one in, the first one in. But there was something in the feed with that number that was just your public service announcement oh, to go yes. look elsewhere. Correct, correct. All right. Episode 100, the final episode. I've got a couple things planned for this episode, but they're not going to take too much time, I think. So if people who are hoping for an eight-hour final episode will be disappointed, which is appropriate, I think, to be disappointed. To, to disappoint your, your audience? On the final episode, yes. I think they're already disappointed enough that you're not doing the show anymore. There you go. So that's what I'm saying. It fits with a theme. <laughs> you just continue the, the wave. Yeah. So we're going to have a little bit of follow-up. Then I'm going to have my main topic for this show, which is not very long. And then we're going to end up with you asking me your questions. Okay. For as long as you want to do that. So like if I wanted to ask an hour, two hours worth of questions, you're up with, you're up for that. Well, you'll be exhausted, but you can't. It, it, people were asking that if you were going to filibuster me. I don't know quite how that would work, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I would, I would recommend against that. But, you know, like, like I said last week, you, have, uh, you already have your questions prepared, you said, and I said to come up with one that you think would be a reasonable way to end the show, and then I will flub it by giving a lame answer, and then that will be it. So what do you think? Sound like a plan? That sounds like a good plan. I, I remember the last time that I was permitted to ask you questions was uh, for an episode of uh, The Pipeline where I interviewed you. In a way, that, that show is a little bit, or that episode was a little bit like the predecessor to this whole, this whole show. That plus the Gabe Newell conversation episode you were on. I was like, come on, do a show. There you go. And then that was this. So there you go. I my think, questions, my questions, right. by the way, just a little teaser. Mm -hmm. Are, are, are going to have nothing to do with technology? Nothing to do with your Mac Pro or the amount of RAM in it? Or TVs right, you know, or anything they, like that? They're your questions. All personal. There you go. What makes Syracuse a tick? All right, so let us start for the first time, for the last time, with follow-up. <laughs> last episode, I discussed uh, the Wii U that you were so kind to send to me, that we've been playing, uh, that my son has been playing nonstop uh, since it came here. And I said that once I got it and transferred my stuff over to it, I realized after transferring my stuff that I wouldn't be able to play Mario 64 with a GameCube controller anymore because now Mario 64 is over on the Wii U and the Wii U doesn't support a GameCube controller. 
a bunch of people sent me links to people modding controllers, which is a, apparently a burgeoning field. Uh, I know they sell like adapters and all sorts of other things like that, but some people sort of have a do-it-yourself type mindset where they will uh, take a Dremel tool to a bunch of controllers and try to make sort of a Franken controller. And mm. one popular theme is taking various controllers and wiring them up to the bottom of a Wii remote. Uh, the links I put in the show note, uh, show notes about this are about someone modding the uh, Wii Classic controller. Do you remember that thing? It's not the Wii U Pro oh, controller, yeah, but it yeah. was similar. Yeah. Two analog sticks, D-pad buttons, and like little kind of horn type handles on it. Uh, and so what this guy did is open that thing up, chop out the, the printed circuit board part of it, mm-hmm. and then take a GameCube controller and pull out its guts and then take the chopped up classic controller circuit board, put it inside the GameCube controller, and then wire all of the controls on the GameCube controller to the printed circuit board. Actually solder it on there to the printed circuit board from the classic controller. So it's basically a classic controller as far as the Wii is concerned. But all of the controls, instead of being hooked up to the thumbsticks on a classic controller, they're hooked up to the thumbsticks on on the GameCube controller and all the buttons and so on and so forth. And it's amazing that that actually works. But I guess, you know, it's all Nintendo, all in the family, and all of the buttons and switches and analog sticks send similar signals. And so it ends up working. Uh, of course, this is not a... It, this is a do-it-yourself job if you are very comfortable with soldering. And it's not super precise like micro-soldering, but it's precise enough that lots of contacts have to be soldered very close to each other and you have to, you know, be careful. It's not something that I would want to try myself. But apparently people do this and then they sell their handiwork. Uh, so this is uh, a Reddit thread where someone posted pictures and then also a link to a forum thread where the person shows the step-by-step things. I tried to find this person's name. They can only come up with, uh, what was it, Gummo? Yeah, good old Gummo. <laughs> Gummo, and then on Reddit, he's Gummoned. Oh. Uh, and there's, I also put a link into one of the various adapters, which is the re, the Wii RetroPad Adapter 2. That, uh, this is another Wii thing, not a Wii U thing, but it lets you uh, connect again to the bottom of a Wiimote and then have another plug that into which you plug an adapter cable where you can have all sorts of controllers attached. NES, SNES, PlayStation, PlayStation 2, GameCube, Nintendo 64, Neo Geo CD, and Sega Saturn. All of those controllers you can use making them look like uh, classic controllers to the Wii. I'm assuming all these same things either already work with the Wii U or similar hacks will come out and work with the Wii U. So there's hope for anybody who wants to play any sort of game uh, with their console using a classic controller. And these things are pretty cheap too. Like the adapters, like twenty five bucks, and the extension cables are like ten bucks for all of them. So uh, it's a market by hobbyists for hobbyists. And also, some of these uh, adapter things they provide like the plans for you to make your own. So if you don't want to buy one from this guy and you just want to do it yourself, you can buy all the parts yourself and assemble them and solder them together and everything. Pretty neat. All right. Next bit of follow up is from jesse lane he was the first person to successfully save me from myself when it comes to mac address filtering on my wireless network uh last show i talked about my difficulties in setting up new devices with because i have mac address filtering on my home network Mm -hmm. and a lot of devices don't show you the mac address at the point where i would need it they just want you to get on the network and before you're allowed to see what the mac address is which is frustrating uh so a lot of people responded in tweets and email saying you shouldn't do Mac address filtering. It's dumb. Uh, and that's not, that's not helpful because <laughs> on the show I, expl- I explained, you know, you said, why right, you so here's, 
yeah, here's why I do it. And uh, and I said, if anyone can tell me why the, the reasons that I do it don't make any sense, uh, by all means do so. But just telling me it's dumb doesn't tell me that, you know, you're, you know, so to, to review, I was saying I did the MAC address filtering uh, not because I thought it was impossible, like like it was a security barrier, because anybody can uh, pretend to have any MAC address they want. That's simple, right? My idea was that, so fine, someone looks at my network and sees the MAC addresses of some devices that are on it and says, okay, I'm going to spoof that MAC address. My assumption was that that person would have a bad experience using my network because if he's trying to use a MAC address that uh, is the same as another device on the network, the two would conf- will conflict with each other and it will make that person sad. And, you know, things won't work right. So, uh, and people who didn't address that and says, you shouldn't do MAC address filtering. It's, it's pointless. You shouldn't do it. You know, they never gave me a reason. They never acknowledged that they heard what I was saying. You know, they said, you know, people can spoof a MAC address. Well, yeah, of course I said that on the show, right? Sometimes it just doesn't fit in 140 characters if it's a tweet or something. But Jesse Lane was the first person to provide an actual explanation that showed he listened to the show. He said, I'm a security professional that has done a fair bit of work in wireless. And he says he doesn't think MAC address filtering is worth doing anymore. He he confirms that, yes, even if you have a WPA2 uh, network or whatever, all the MAC addresses, of course, are visible because that's a layer two thing. Uh, so And it's trivial to spoof MAC address, like I said on the show, uh, which he acknowledged. Uh, and then he said, it's incorrect to assume that the person stealing your MAC address will have a bad experience because of two conflicting uh, MAC addresses on the network. Uh, what will happen, he says, is the traffic will go to the, whichever MAC address most recently responded to an ARP request. So the, the malicious person on the network just can send what he calls gratuitous ARPs to say, oh, I'm the one <laughs> who has that IP address. I'm, I'm at that MAC address. Uh, and that will effectively prevent your legitimate host from ever getting a chance to talk. Uh, I put a link in the show notes to uh, ARP address resolution protocol. Uh, you can look up what that is. But basically... Once someone uh, gets your MAC address and spoofs it, they can very quickly flood the network with uh, res- with uh, gratuitous ARP responses saying, oh, I, I'm, you know, I'm the guy with that MAC address. I'm over here and it's this IP address, so just keep doing that. And the other device, since it's not malicious and not trying to steal, its, uh, you know, steal an address, will never get any more packets and will just sort of sit there and be sad. Uh, so, and he says, okay, even without gratuitous ARPs, he said it would be easy to just watch my network and select a MAC address of a client that's not used very often. Uh, like I said, that's, that's less likely because most of my devices that have, uh, that are on the Wi-Fi are on all the time, but, uh, that's worth pointing out too. Uh, and he says, most importantly, WPA2 is very strong encryption and, uh, he, he compares putting the Mac address filtering on. It's a bit like locking the latch hook on a, on a screen door when you have a reinforced steel security door right behind it. Uh, so his advice is to just use WPA2 with a long, good password and turn off Mac filtering. And that's what I did. So I am now uh, Mac address filtering free on my home wireless network. And the last bit in my defense is that this is one of those things where you have to reevaluate stuff as time goes on because I put the Mac address filtering on back when I had, you know, WEP, when, when the security was a joke, right, long, long ago. And it just never turned it off. I just kept it on because through a series of Apple airport uh, wireless things, it just keeps importing my setting. And I just never turned it off. I said, well, you know, it was a good thing to have on when, you know, they had WEP security that was easy to break. It was just one extra layer of, you know, one more hurdle for hackers to overcome. Not a particularly high hurdle, but, you know, I just wanted to make it difficult. But at this point, it is now uh, completely moot, and I have turned off MAC address filtering. So thank you to Jesse Lane. And let that be a lesson to anyone else out there who is doing MAC address filtering on their network, although it seems like I may be the only one in the entire world. All right. And the final piece of follow-up. A lot of people have been posting retrospectives about the show. Yeah, and, there's been a bunch of really cool things going on. 
yeah, they make their own like, uh, you know, super cuts where they'll cut together their favorite parts of the show uh, in audio form. Some of them are like a five minutes worth of fun clips. Some of them are 20 minute long things. Uh, I've been reading them, listening to them. Uh, thanks to everyone who made one. Uh, that's a lot of work to go through. So it is, uh, you are recognized as a true fan. Uh, but one in particular stuck out, and this was by Jonathan Mann, who for the longest time I just uh. assumed was related <laughs> to Merlin Mann. Like, because doesn't it, if, if Merlin Mann had like a younger brother, don't you think it would be Jonathan Mann? I, uh, you know, they, they do have some things in common, I, I guess. Right, um, the musical stuff, and like he just went in a different direction in his life, and sort of Merlin, you know, did the music thing, but then kind of went in a different direction, and then his younger brother was kind of following his footsteps and doing the music thing, and sort of went whole hog with it, right? He's sort of younger and more uh, more energetic and vibrant still, you know, doesn't have those deep furrows in his face. Uh, anyway, there is actually no relation, as far as I know, between Jonathan Mann and Merlin Mann, but Jonathan Mann... His description of himself is, I'm a musician, a songwriter, best known for writing a song a day. Mm-hmm. He's been at it for over 1,400 days straight. And he's got an album called Song a Day, the album that you can buy. I put a link in the show notes. He literally writes a song every day. Uh, and he made a song for me. He did. I, I have Song a Day number 1,450. That's that right. A my- nice even number, too. I mean, I was very, that, that alone should have made you happy that it ended in a, it, it ended in a zero. Yes, it did. And so it's a YouTube video. You can watch the video of him singing the song. I wanted uh, to, well, I wanted to add, we haven't cleared this with him, but would you, shall we play it now? I'm, I've got it queued up and ready to go. Should we play it now? Should we uh, play it to, you know, on, in the intro or outro of the show or? Uh, I don't think you play the whole song because it's long and I want people to have to go to the show. It's two minutes, 18 seconds. It's a tribute to you. It's not uh, that long. Two minutes. Uh, what does the chat room think? I'll give the chat room a uh, wow a chance to weigh in. Should we play the song on the air or not? While well, they answer that, I'm going to say a few more things about the song. Okay. So, uh, true. Oh, I, they're going nuts in the <laughs> chat room. Look at this. Everyone wants to hear it. Right, Everyone right. wants to hear it. Whoa. This right, is the just... most response I've ever seen from those jackals. All right. Let, let me just say my first, last few things about the song. So, when I listened to the song, I thought it was great and everything, but... There were a couple of mistakes in the song, starting with when he posted the video to YouTube. <laughs> There's mistakes in the song that you get to point out, yes. But starting when he, he posted it to YouTube, it's called, you know, Hypercritical Song of the Day number uh, uh, 1450. And hypercritical is misspelled. There's a missing I. He forgot an I between the T and the C, right? And so right away, I'm suspicious, <laughs> right? And then if you look at the song lyrics, and we'll hear in a second, he mentions that I have three kids, but I don't have three kids. I only have two. And when he says the name of Apple's desktop operating system, he says OS X instead of OS X. And so I'm like, hmm. So I figured, well, you know, I should at least reply to this. To you know, I replied to him on Twitter. I said, you know, just so you're not disappointed, here are the corrections for the song. And I couldn't tell if it was like, you know, doing intentionally or not. And he responded. He said, oops, sorry, I thought you had three kids or whatever. And I said, shh, just, just pretend it was intentional. Because isn't that perfect? Like you would do the song and intentionally put a bunch of mistakes in it. Like yeah, you know, it's like just to give you right. something to say. So we are retconning it and saying all the mistakes in this song are totally <laughs> intentional and it's part of the message of the song. And we're not going to acknowledge that Jonathan actually made any mistakes in the posting or creation of the song. All right, so the chat room has spoken. They desperately want to hear this. Uh, roll to 12, as they say now. Okay. When your superpower is criticism, well, your options, they're limited, and you gotta watch what you say. 
who you say it to. I love a man who's hypercritical. He makes complicated things understandable. From toaster ovens to closer to the metal, he's hypercritical. John Syracusa is so hypercritical. Dropping knowledge you can use up. His insights are powerful. He tears apart technology. Walter Isaacson, so specific with the what he likes, the things he thinks are dumb. Well, follow him from the beginning. He didn't know what he had to say until he said it, and now he's moving on. Now he's moving on. After 100 episodes, he's calling it quits before he explodes. No more follow-up. No more epic rants. John Syracuse, you're so hypercritical. He's a man I'd not refuse oh, to criticize my soul. He sees right to the heart of things. Perfection is his cry. His podcast makes me want to sing and salute him by and by. 21 nerds salute, salute. 21 nerds salute. You're epic. OSX, astute analysis makes us holler and hoot. 21 nerd high five, high five. 21 nerd high five. You got three kids and a beautiful wife. You're living the king nerd, a highlight. John Syracuse is so hypercritical. He's a man I not refuse oh, to criticize my soul. He sees right to the heart of things. Perfection is his tribe. I'll miss you, dude. You know what he says at the end of that? I'll miss you, dude. I think he absolutely means it. It's very, it's very sweet. It's a very nice song. Did did you cry when you listened to it? I did not. I did. All right. Well, there you go. <laughs> what things people have said about the show is they're surprised that so many words rhyme with my last name. <laughs> That's just called good songwriting, people. Yeah, that's that's called Jonathan Mann's a freaking genius. Yeah, and one one of the people in the uh, the chat room said, "Don't play it." It says OSX. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. So I think that's that's just perfect mistakes and all, which were totally intentional, as we noted. And so, if you like the kind of thing, check out Jonathan Mann's other music and his album. That is my last bit of follow up. Well. That is the end of follow-up then forever. Uh, sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Follow-up exists whether we're here or not, Dan. Oh. It's like... <laughs> if there's know, follow-up and no one around to hear it, does it yeah, <laughs> still make a got, sound? Now you're getting it. <laughs> yeah. Do so you want to do a sponsor before we dive into the uh, main topic? <clears throat> yeah, I can compose myself a little bit. Yeah, maybe yeah, dry, dry your eyes. Get a hanky. MailChimp.com, easy email newsletters. And, you know, it's only fitting. It's only fitting that MailChimp is one of the sponsors because they are our longest running sponsor. Maybe one of our very first sponsors sponsored this show more than probably any other one. They do email newsletters. They help you design email newsletters. They help you share them on social networks. We use them to send the frequency newsletter. And if you want to see how easy it is to integrate their stuff with your stuff, Go to thefrequency.co and then you can see our little newsletter sign up right there. We have the same thing on 5 by 5 slash newsletter. They, uh, they help you match it to your brand. You can integrate it with Facebook. You can 
even import an existing list into MailChimp, no matter how it's formatted. You can personalize everything your subscribers see, you name it. There's never been a better time to try them out. 2,000 subscribers and you can send 12,000 emails per month forever for free. You want to uh, to support 5x5 and give John a nice send-off? MailChimp.com slash 5x5 to learn more. Now, we do have one little little bit of follow-up that uh, you did not note, note yet, but that we should mention. All right. The hypercritical t-shirts. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, it was decided that it will just be hypercritical in the stylized text that uh, goes along with the artwork for this show. That was decided both by you and the, obviously, the audience supported you. So we'll be doing those t-shirts uh, in the, I think the first week of the year, the first week of January, which actually is next week. And uh, that will be, we will, we're going to pick a color. You will approve it. People have also asked for mugs as well. We will have a separate run of mugs that will not be part of this just because of the shipping and the thing. And it's probably gonna be easier, but I don't know. Maybe we'll combine them if I can. It's logistics, John. What's going to be on the mugs then? Same thing as the shirts? I think I think the mugs uh, could be the same thing as, as the shirt because you've approved it. What do you think? Do you want something that's, different? That's fine with me. Uh, I mean, lots of people who are requesting, like the people who, who are on the short end of the, the shirt survey now mm-hmm. are trying to get redemption. They say, well, you know, I was outvoted by the other people for the shirt, but can I get whatever was my favorite on the mug? And I don't know if people have different opinions on the mugs, but anyway, I'm perfectly fine with uh, the name of the show, just like on the shirt, being on the mug. If you want to go whole hog and have a separate survey over mugs, you can do that. But, you know, I don't, you know, I don't think that's necessary, but it's up to you. Okay. But they, so the the best way to keep up to date since there uh, won't be another episode of Hypercritical to listen to, to get information about it, I think the best way to find out about it would be to follow 5x5 on Twitter, where I will tweet about it. We'll probably do a blog post on blog.5x5.tv at some point. But um, obviously you could listen to the frequency where we do the news. But if, if that's too much of a commitment, then just follow 5 by 5 on Twitter and we'll tweet about it. And uh, we'll have a link to it from the, the website as well. And I'll tweet about it from my account. For sure, Syracuse. And, and also from the Hypercritical account. So if you follow right. any of those accounts, I, it will be tweeted or retweeted on, you know, you'll find out about it. Rest assured, we will not let you uh, miss this. I, I guess maybe some people like don't follow everything on Twitter, but uh, the five by five announcement account is There's low a lot. volume. Yeah. Well, that, that was going to say compared to what you do on hypercritical, maybe hypercritical's. Yeah, something hypercritical to is probably the lowest sure. volume. So, yeah. like, even if you're if you you think, oh, did I miss a tweet? Just go to twitter.com/slash/hypercritical and just look through the last ten tweets for something that has to do with shirts. I mean, it, it's not high volume on that account, so you'll you'll see the announcement. All right. So we're ready for the uh, main topic. I'm ready. Uh, this, like I said, I think this will be a short main topic, but, uh, you know, it is what it is. And then after that, we'll do the Q and a, uh, so I was kind of heartened to see that so many fans of the show correctly guessed what the topic for the final show would be. I tried not to confirm to any of them that they were getting it right, but it made me feel like I was along the, I was on the right track. The fact that so many people said that they thought this was what the last episode would be. Now, maybe some of them were joking. Maybe a lot of them are joking. Maybe all of them were joking uh, because there were certainly jokes about what the last episode would be about or that it would you know, be indefinite and it would go on forever and all sorts of other things. But I like to believe that in their heart of hearts that they knew that their guess was true, the people who were actually correct. Can you, Dan, guess what the final topic is going to be? I have intentionally not 
looked at any of the predictions. I have intentionally stayed as far away from whatever the, you know, the predictions of this would be because I wanted to, uh, I wanted to, you know, be surprised as I am every week being surprised. Um, so no, and I haven't, and I've intentionally not thought about it at all. I've tried not to think about it. I want to come into this completely fresh and, and, and open-minded beginner's mind, as we say. Oh, I was about to say beginner's mind. We're See? having a mind melt here. That's right. Dan. Vulcan mind don't, melt. Don't jump in before I can mock you with your own sayings. All right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Beginner's mind. All right. So I hope when I say this, it will make sense to you. The final topic uh, for the final hypocritical episode is what is wrong with the hypocritical podcast? <laughs> that's, that, that's perfect. How, so much how, wrong with it. <laughs> how could it be? How could the topic be anything else? Yes, this is perfect. How, because, you know, that's how you, that's how you end it. <laughs> we're going to take a look at this podcast, of which there have been 100 episodes, 98 of which are featuring me. Uh, and we're going to talk about what's wrong. What's wrong with this thing? Will you uh, focus on the 98 that included you? And technically, can you criticize the show that is happening right now? Can you criticize uh, this episode? Is that possible? I feel like what, what I have to say will apply to this episode as well. Okay. Because what I'm going to suggest, and I think you know what's coming, is that we have a follow-up show to <laughs> criticize this episode. Nice try, Dan. Okay. I just want to right. put that out there. I mean, you're going to have to run with it. All right. So I got, I've got a, a small number of items here. And of course, since I'm the one uh, criticizing the show, I'm also going to provide counterpoint because I'm also <laughs> the one producing this show. <laughs> okay. All right. So it's kind of, you know... It, and argue with myself, but it's not, it's not really like a winning or a losing argument. There are bad things about it and there are reasons that the bad things exist. And so I'm going to talk about the bad things and what's bad about them and then explain why it is that they exist. It doesn't make them not bad. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm doing all sides of this, right? Cause you know, that's the way it has to be. All right. And, and it's, the list is kind of sorted, but not really like the first thing I have, I think is the worst thing about the podcast and then I'll get a little bit better. And I just kind of stopped. Like there are many more things wrong with the hypercritical podcast than I'm going to list, but <laughs> I feel like I hit the highlights after a handful of items. All right. So the number one thing that's wrong with the hypercritical podcast, again, I will give you one last chance to guess, Dan, what is the number one thing that's wrong with the hypercritical podcast besides that it's ending? No, oh, that was going to be my answer was that it's I, ending. I know. Well, you know, you got to pick something different. Nothing? I can't think of a single thing that oh, I don't yeah. like about this show. Besides that it's ending. Besides that it's ending. All right. Well, here we I, go. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, no. Hattie, I mean, back me up. She's looking, I, I, I can't it. think of anything. You being true? All right. Here, so There's I, nothing wrong with it, John. I, I did think of some things and here they are. The number one thing that's wrong with the Hypergrill podcast is follow up. But it's nothing wrong with that. What are you talking about? You're not supposed to argue with me. I argue with myself. But you'll have, you'll have your chance to give your account. All right, Follow. fine. All, I'll be quiet. Yes. Also abbreviated as FU, uh, is the people who might not know, is the part of the show where we talk about, talk about the topics discussed on past shows, and we revisit them. Usually we revisit them in response to listener feedback. Sometimes it's like self-feedback, where I realize that something was uh, wrong or something, I need to correct it. Uh, there's different types of FU. We have corrections, which is, you know, the Comic-Con. We have expansions where it's like, you know, about the thing we talked about last week, here's some more about it. There's also clarifications where if I said something that was misunderstood, I try to clarify it. Uh, so what, what's so bad about follow-up? Uh, follow-up happens at the start of the show. And so 
it necessarily delays the discussion of whatever the new topic is, just like on the show right here. Before we got to this part where you know, we're talking about what's wrong with the Hypercritical Podcast, we had the follow-up. And so that delayed th this discussion. And a common tweet from fans of the show or things I see, you know, going back and forth between people after we do a show or some topic comes up, they'll say, oh, th there was a great discussion about whatever this topic is, you know, on Hypercritical episode number 96. Uh, just, you know, check it out and skip the minute 35. Uh, and here's an actual tweet from the Incomparables Twitter account, the Incomparable and other podcasts that I participate in. Uh, assuming this tweet was made by Jason Snell. He usually runs that account, but other people tweet to it as well, I think. Uh, here it is. It says, if you liked our Bad at High School episode, check out Syracuse on Hypercritical this week. And it gives a link to the episode. Starts 57 minutes in. So that type of thing where whenever anyone wants to recommend the show to someone else, they have to say, uh, oh, here, check this one out. And like skip <laughs> a half an hour, an hour into the show. Because they don't want to say, oh, just check this out. Because if you just start listening, you're like, I thought they said this was going to be about, you know, whatever, the, like the bad at high school stuff. And I'm listening and he's just talking about this other stuff, right? Anytime, you know, it, anytime anyone talks about the show, they have to give some sort of minute marker type thing. I, and I find myself holding back from suggesting episodes of my own podcast to people just so I can avoid having to explain that, oh, you check out this episode, but you have to skip to a certain marker point or skip, skip a quarter of the show to get to the good part. It makes the podcast harder to share with people and it makes it harder to get into if you're a new listener because the follow-up is not relevant to you if you didn't hear the previous episode. If you just chase that all the way back, you end up having to start listening for episode one, which was two years ago, and that's not really uh, tenable. And also, the follow-up makes each episode longer because instead of just starting right in with a new thing that we want to talk about in a new episode, that, that you know, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, sometimes apparently 57 minutes of stuff before the actual topic of the show uh, just makes every episode longer. Um, so a couple of remedies for the follow-up have been recommended over the years. One early on, people saying, why don't we just put the follow-up at the end? Uh, so like people so could listen they, and say, oh, forget it. I don't, I don't want to hear any more of this and then just stop. Or, you know, but you get like the, you get whatever the main topic is immediately. Right. So if you, if there, we did some cool show on like, you know, video game controllers or something, you could say, oh, there was an episode about this. Uh, check it out and just give you the link to episode whatever. And you would start listening and you would hear immediately after the little intro, you'd hear about video game controllers, which is what your friend one sent you the link for. And then at the end, you would have the follow up. Uh, and very early on, that was suggested. And I rejected it because uh, it breaks continuity. The way we do it with the follow-up on the front preserves continuity because like on an episode, we'll discuss topic A and then that episode will end. And then the next episode, we'll have more on topic A because it's follow-up and that will end and then we'll do topic B, right? And the other thing is that the topic B may build on topic A. So if we didn't do the follow-up in the beginning, say we're talking about topic B, we'd have to have, add some sort of waffling like, I know that we said last week that blah, 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 but that isn't actually true, which you'll see when we get to the follow-up at the end. Like, you can't, you can't move on until you've addressed the follow-up because if you're talking about the new topic, you want to talk about it in light of the new revelations or new clarifications or expansions of the topic from last week. So follow-up at the end just does not work for me. Uh, people have suggested adding a chapter marker uh, in, in, you know, the, the file itself or having separate follow-up episodes, like a little mini-episode and then the main episode or having a separate feed for follow-up all three of those solutions, aside from the production-related issues, which you can speak to to say whether that would be feasible or whatever, uh, is that they all encourage skipping of the follow-up because the reason you'd want to have that marker and all the other stuff is like, oh, well, there's that the follow-up is sort of isolated, and if you don't want to listen to it, you can jump right past it. I don't mm -hmm. want people to jump past it. 
uh, I want people to actually listen to the follow-up. Uh, so why, why, why do we have follow-up? Why is it there after all these bad things I've said about it? And I truly believe that follow-up really is a big downside to the show that, you know, really stops it from being accessible and stops it from being shared and all the things you would want. Like if you want to make a popular podcast, you want it to be easily shared. You want people to be jump, to jump right in. So why do I do it? Uh, well, I think it's part of the theme of the show, sort of the dedication to getting things correct, uh, have the attention to detail and, and, you know, in the highfalutin version, the, the search for truth or, you know, whatever, as close as we can get. Uh, and continuity, like, you know, where when you start listening and we're talking about things that we did in the last show, continuity repels casual listeners, but it also rewards dedicated listeners because they feel like, oh, now I'm resuming this thing in progress. I think we've seen this recently with television shows as well, where people used to be allergic to continuity on television. People who made TV shows would try to make everything episodic. Uh, but slowly but surely, television series have been learning that, yes, continuity does make it hard to get into a program. But with time shifting and everything, uh, it's easier for people to start from the beginning or, you know, get it on DVD or streamer it or whatever. And continuity rewards the people who are dedicated fans of the show. So that's sort of flipped around. Uh, and it's the same dichotomy in podcasting. Uh, enthusiastic fans want to hear more about the topics they're interested in. So if I talk about some topic and, uh, you know, you're interested in it, you're happy when you start the next show to hear more on that topic or some sort of follow-up or a little tidbit. Follow-up also, of course, rewards the individual listeners who write in with the follow-up. They get the thrill of hearing their name mispronounced on the air. It's exciting. <laughs> that is a thrill. Yeah. They get to participate in the conversation. Not really like, you know, real-time, like a call-in show, but they get to be a participant in a conversation that, that they're listening to, albeit with a massive time delay. Sometimes they get to follow-up their own follow-up on the next show so they can have sort of a, <laughs> you know, an even longer conversation. And all this, I think, encourages hardcore fans and helps the show by harvesting information that would otherwise be locked away in a listener's minds. Uh, so, you know, if you ever listen to a podcast and you get frustrated because the hosts are like wondering about something and you know the answer yeah. and you wish you could just yell into the thing like, no, no, like, here, let me tell you what it is. Well, follow up provides an outlet for that frustration. Instead of just going, these dopes, don't they know? Or, you know, or if you know the answer, you can't yell back into the podcast. But if, if you know that follow up is part of the format, you can say, well, as soon as I get home, I'm going to bang on an email and say, hey, guys, you were asking about X, Y, and Z. I know about that. Here's the answer. Uh, and not only is it an outlet for the frustration for them, but I, I'm now reaping the benefits of having a smart, informed audience. Like, you know, presumably someone in our audience knows a lot about, uh, you know, wireless security or history of video game controllers or how Intel does their CPUs or whatever. Uh, I'm benefiting from that. So I, despite the fact that I think this is clear, follow-up is clearly the biggest thing that's wrong with the show, uh, those are all the reasons that I keep it and, you know, early on decided to keep it and have stuck with it. Uh, and the other thing about follow-up is it, it could be that follow-up ends up being the most enduring aspect of, uh, of the show. Because I was thinking about this. I listen to a lot of other podcasts, a lot of other 5 by 5 podcasts. And a lot of them do follow-up. Uh, sometimes, like, ironically or jokingly, like for the people who happen to know me, like Marco or Merlin, will say, oh, yeah, and I've got a little piece of follow-up or whatever. And they're doing it kind of half a joke, haha, like it's not a dedicated part of the format, but anytime they do have something like that, they'll throw it in, right? Uh, but even on shows like, like on Geek Friday, I don't think either, either of the hosts of Geek Friday ever listened to my show, and yet they have follow-up as well. And I wonder, you know, kind of like cutting the ends off the roast, you know that story? No, tell me the story. Uh, it's like the, the woman uh, is making a, a roast or something and she's cutting off the ends of it. And someone asks, why, why are you cutting off the ends of your roast? It's, oh, well, you know, my mother always cut the ends off. You always have to do that. It makes the roast come out better. Uh, and 
then uh, they asked the mother, uh, you know, your daughter said you always have to cut off the ends of the roast when you put it in the oven. It makes it come out better. Why do you do that? And so, well, my grandmother, you know, my mother, your grandmother always cut the ends off the roast. You have to do that or else it doesn't come out right. And so they asked the grandmother, why do you cut the ends off the roast? And she said, well, uh, all my roasting pans were too small, so I always had to cut the ends off for, so it would fit. <laughs> and so like three generations from now, no one knows why you're cutting the ends off the roast. It's just like, oh, that's what you do when you make a roast, right? It's just the right thing. to. So I'm wondering if like the people who uh, do Geek Friday, do they know where follow-up comes from? And even like outside the network, you know, the, the, the second incarnation of the talk show, which is no longer even on 5x5, five five, uh, Gruber does follow-up on that show as well. So, you know, this is my, my lasting legacy is five degrees separated from 5x5 five five. on some podcast somewhere. Someone will mention that they're going to do follow-up and have no idea uh, why they're doing that or where that term came from. Or where that format, I mean, I'm, maybe I'm not the first person ever to do follow-up, but I think I can trace a straight line through from my follow-up to the very least Marco and Merlin's follow-up, probably to Geek Friday's follow-up, and probably to Gruber's follow-up as well. So I think there is some merit to this idea, perhaps not to the degree that I did it in my show, but, you know, every show is different. All right. Item number two that is wrong with the Hypercritical Podcast. Uh, the title. I think there are probably very few people who have positive feelings about the word hypercritical uh you know people who don't already know about the podcast or the blog or anything else like that it it, it repels most normal people with negative implications of the word because like being critical is a bad thing in most circles being critical hurts people's feelings and hypercritical is even worse hypercritical is being needlessly critical like like you're being a jerk like you're not just being critical but you're being hypercritical so you're just a super duper jerk and so why would you want a podcast about hurting people's feelings needlessly it just turns, it's a big turnoff. It just turns people off. Uh, and, you know, I acknowledge that. Now, why, so why do I have this title? Well, the first reason is that the Ars Technica article that I wrote uh, several years before the podcast had the same name as its title. It was titled Hypercritical. And that was the inspiration for the show, for the format of the show, the content of the show, everything about the show. A link to this article is in the show notes one last time, if you still haven't found it. Uh, that's not exactly a reason to use it for the title of the podcast, but that, that's why I originally picked it. Second reason is that it's kind of a hedge against criticism because people are going to say, uh, I listened to that show. The guy's so picky and he's got so many complaints. And, and you can answer that, uh, you know, well, what's the title of the show? Like, what did you think you were getting? It does what it says on the tin, as the saying goes, stolen from England or wherever. Uh, the show is called Hypercritical, so you should expect that type of thing. Right? Now, that's not exactly, that doesn't make any sense. Just because that's the title of the show, that doesn't answer. <laughs> if, if, you're, if your issue is that, that, that I'm too picky on the show and that the show is full of complaints, me telling you that, oh, well, just look at the title of the show doesn't answer any of your complaints. Uh, it's, not, it's, not a com- it's not a justification at all. But uh, that doesn't mean it doesn't placate people because people are not logical. So I find that when people say, you know, you see this, I see the conversation happening all the time in the chat room and Twitter or whatever. Someone listened to the show say it's full of complaints and it's picking other person will say well duh look at the title of the show and that ends the conversation and it shouldn't but it does uh <laughs> so that, like i don't know if that's a justification for the title but it's one of those perverse actual interactions that happens all the time uh and pointing to the title of the show somehow ends the debate and they go well okay i guess and <laughs> that really i shouldn't be telling people but that shouldn't that shouldn't end the debate because you haven't actually answered the criticism if you don't like the show because there's too much complaints Someone pointing the title to you doesn't make you like the show any better and shouldn't stop you from having that complaint. Uh, 
So I don't really have a real good justification, except that I like the title. It's hard to come up with good titles. I became attached to it because it was attached to that article, which involved both me and Steve Jobs. And, and it was the inspiration for the show. So it only makes sense for it to be the title. Uh, but it does, it does keep people away. Uh, next item, show duration. Hear this one a lot. Shows are too long. Okay, I can, I can get on board with this one a little bit. Because <laughs> you must suffer through them too. No, I, it's never suffering. And, and it's, but here's the thing. May I, may I jump in here? Go for it. It's not that the shows are too long. It's that the shows are longer than most other shows that other people would hear, especially in the format that this show is, which is pretty much you talking. And I don't think that it's that they're too long. I think it's longer than what many people are used to, what many people expect, and perhaps what many people have time for. But I would, uh, my counterpoint to this before you respond is that's what makes the shows great. And that any less time, any less time than you devote to these things would be carelessness from your standpoint, I think. I'm not saying you would be careless. I'm saying you feel because of your desire to be complete and to totally understand something and discuss it, you must examine every point. And for you to do any less would be a disservice. Yeah, so the show length argument, logically, it doesn't make that much sense because as we've both pointed out many times, like you don't have to listen to an entire show in a single sitting. I certainly don't. Like I, I listen to even very short podcasts split up into pieces. Maybe some people find that off-putting, but like, you know, when I'm on my commute, when I get home, I stop whatever podcast I'm listening to and it's always in the middle of one. You know, it's rarely at the end. Uh, but as we just got done saying, people aren't really logical and, you know, they just say, well, I just don't like listening to things split up. Like, you know, uh, even, even ignoring the session length issue, like I just want to have one listening session. It needs to be a certain length and I don't like stopping in the middle. As you said, some people just don't have time to listen to two hours of audio in the week. Like maybe they don't have a commute or maybe they don't have two hours worth of dishes to wash, or maybe they prefer music most of the time, right? And so if if your podcast is good enough, a 30-minute or 60-minute podcast has a chance of snagging people who don't normally listen to podcasts. So if you're like, all right, well, I don't normally have a place in my life where I listen to podcasts. Again, don't have a commuter, don't I listen to music other times or whatever. If the podcast is really good and it's like 30 to 60 minutes, maybe you can get some of those guys. But if it's like 90 or 120 minutes, forget it. Like it's really hard to get those people to come over to listen to your podcast if it's just so long, right? Uh, and so why why the heck are my shows so long? And by the way, there was another, let me grab the link from the chat room. There's another more complicated analysis of show length uh, still showing a general upward trend. But of course that trend will end now because the show length will suddenly drop to zero driving the average. <laughs> uh, well, the show length won't drop to zero. There would just be no more shows. Yeah, I guess so. You're right. Uh, so, so why is it so long? Well, the first thing is that Preparation for the show makes shows shorter uh, because when I know what I'm going to say, I don't like meander as much and I can kind of say, okay, I'm halfway due, I'm a, I'm a quarter through or whatever. Uh, but even with hour, literally hours of preparation for each show, the, the limiting factor is that I have a lot to say about these topics and thoroughness is part of the theme of the show. Right. I said about my writing before that like the most important thing for me when I'm writing for good or for ill is to get all the ideas I have out onto the page every little thing like you know I, I will find it frustrating if i get through a section and like a mag 10 review or something it's like oh i wanted to also make one particular point about this one control in the interface and i have to find some place to jam that in i just want to get it all out like i want to i don't want to finish the thing and say 
Uh, I didn't make that point because I just didn't have room or something. So I want to get it out. And of course, follow up makes the show longer. And it's also part of the same sort of thoroughness theme. But it's but it's like you said, like I have if I have a lot to say, I want to get it a lot. And I don't feel satisfied if I haven't. And I think that fits with the theme of the show that, you know, not wanting to let things go. The thoroughness, you know, the, the attention to detail, just the obsessed, the general obsessiveness of, of the entire endeavor. And that just plain results in long shows. So the preparation is a hedge against that. But even even with the preparation, all it does is let me get my you know, umpteen points out to make to make sure I got them all out and didn't miss any. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Next item. Uh, and you touched on this already, yeah. and maybe this should have been higher up the list. Domination of a single voice, which is mine. Uh, no matter how much you like a person, hearing too much from them can start to sort of wear you down. Uh, you, you, Dan, are the co-host of the show, but for the most part, you let me talk when I want to talk. Well, it's your. Sh- I mean, I'd say this to Merlin as a joke. It's your show. This really is. It's your show. This is your forum. And my role here, from from day one, is just to be supportive of that. Be give help help you keep this platform and you know the best it can be. We're in sync today, Dan, because the very next item on my bullet point is it's my show. You know, as, yeah. as you're fo- so fond of saying. Well, you finally uh, shared your notes with me. Yeah, there you go. I, and this is in general how I want things. Uh, but the downside of this format is that Syracuse fatigue is a real risk, especially with long <laughs> shows, right? Uh, you know, and, and a corollary to this is that this format of, you know, the single voice dominant thing makes it much harder for me to, not that I'm good at this already, but it makes it much harder for me to do any sort of decent interview. Like when we had Jeff Atwood on, I talked all over him, which was oh, yeah. just rude and terrible. No, but it was I'm, great. Like, but that like if you get acclimated to that it's like when you do the hypercritical podcast you go into hypercritical podcast mode and you're used to just being the, the singular voice uh that doesn't fit with lots of other formats like for example doing an interview type thing uh and that's a shame but that, that limits the show uh and in general having a single voice means that my peculiar tastes dictate entire shows worth of material so i'm really interested in console controllers so we do a whole show on console controllers you know, my my own pet programming language peeves and, and opinions like that Tons of stuff on TiVo, even if the rest of the world is not that interested in TiVo. Toasters, like you name it. The single voice means that you get everything that comes with that, the, the good and the bad, right? Uh, and if it was a more balanced show, like a second opinion could help veto topics that are too narrow or, you know, or at least rein me in when I'm wearing out my welcome on a single topic or something like that. And that would help the show have broader appeal because if it was like, if it was like an equal type of show where you had like two people going at the same time, they could balance each other and try to get something that had a broader appeal because if you're not interested in the things that I'm interested in a single voice show like this, you're just like, Meh. like people skip entire episodes. It's like, Oh, he just started talking about programming languages and I just tuned out and skipped the whole episode. Uh, and that's not the way to have a popular show with broad appeal. Uh, so why, why is this a single voice show? I mentioned that that's what I wanted. That is what I wanted out of the show. I wanted to do a thing where we had a podcast and it was my podcast and I got to talk with a singular voice moderated by a co-host yes and like that i think is a totally essential element mm-hmm. uh, because i've tried and failed several times to record things on my own with no co-host and it just does not work uh and i'm the the wing had, uh, the wind beneath your wings if you will yes and we didn't remember when you went on a vacation or not vacation when you moved your house it's yeah. like the uh in the secret of nim when the brisbees moved their house that's what i imagine your move was that's like. exactly what it was like it was the rats and the yes. police and yes yeah exactly got, i mean in, in every detail exactly like that someone got crushed underneath a cinder block it was messy <laughs> Nicodemus. All right. <laughs> when, 
when you, I mean, you had a guest host stand in. So it was not just, you know, who was it, Ryan Ireland? Yeah, I think Ryan Ireland uh, yeah. stood in for, for me back then. He did a great job, and he also hosted the show with Marco, but, uh, you know, it, it just wasn't the same. Uh, maybe because, like, you know, those was his first first time ever talking to me in person in the first couple of shows, and he, he you know, he did a good job filling the role of a co-host, but it's not just any co-host. Like, I think you in particular provide a, a, a certain essential ingredient to this podcast. Uh, so I think there does have to be a co-host in the mix and not just any co-host because it, like those shows were different than the shows that, that you co-host. But I wanted the overall show to have a singular voice the same way like your own blog has a singular voice, right? Like, you know, Hive Logic or something like that is your voice. It's not, you know, it's not even moderated by, by a co-host or anything because when you're right. blogging, you don't need a co-host or something. But like that's, it's, this is the podcast version of a blog. I wanted someone to say, if I want to hear what this one person has to say, I go on, this is his podcast, and I'll listen to him talk, right? And uh, part of your role is also that you are sort of standing in, you, you are the advocate for the audience a little bit, like right. whether it's just looking at the chat room or thinking of the questions that are going to come up in the audience's mind and so on and so forth. So I try. I mean, you know, because, be, and that's the thing is that, that, like you mentioned before, where we'll have follow-up because we won't, you know, we might say something or you might be talking about something and maybe you get a, something that's not hundred percent right. A lot of the time the chat room will channel that. But when I hear you say something a lot of the time and I just, there's something in my gut that says, wait a minute, and this doesn't happen a lot, especially not when we're talking about technical stuff. Cause you, you've got all that figured out when we're talking about the other stuff that, that where there's like a, a judgment involved. And I think, well, maybe the audience, you know, what, are, what are they going to say to that? And, and I'm, you know, you've got to, I've got to jump in. So maybe it's just that. Maybe it's just that you feel that, you know, you're not alone talking into a mic. And even though you know there's an audience there listening, having me here, you know, it, it, it makes it more of a discussion, even though it, it's, it's pretty much your turn on the podium the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. So I, like, I, like I said, I think, I think that does limit the appeal of the show. Because no matter how, just think of anybody, think of your favorite celebrity. Like think of like a Ricky Gervais who like say you're a big fan of him or something. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's great. If it was not my just favorite, show, You're my favorite celebrity. If it was just a show with him talking, like even the shows that he does, he has this partner that he kind of bounces off, but it's more equal than that. So just having like having a single person dominated blog, I feel is much easier to deal with than having a single person dominated podcast. Uh, So, you know, especially if, you know, if you if you if that person is not like likable and appealing, that really limits uh, how how uh, how many people are going to be able to listen to and, and like the show. But, that, but that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted was a single voice podcast. And that's what I got. Uh, next item that's wrong with the hypercritical podcast is want, me wanting to discuss topics that are outside my areas of expertise, oh, but not, right. not doing enough background research on those topics. What's uh, so an example of, of one of those? Well, we'll get to examples. Okay. I, I mentioned in the past shows that I'm not a journalist uh, uh, because I can't just write about any topic. Like a real journalist, you could just throw at a topic and they'll learn about it and talk about it. Uh, it, you know, in, in general, when I do writing, I stick to what I actually know stuff about or I'm close to knowing about so I can do a little bit of research and figure it out. Uh, and though I have, you know, interest and passion about lots of topics, I break the format a little bit when I tackle things on the podcast that I have little practical experience with. And it changes for me. The podcast then changes for me sharing informed opinions and backgrounds with the audience to me having uh, what one listener once described as a slow motion argument with the internet 
where, where it'll be like me discussing something with all the listeners in the show, but in slow motion because I get to have my say, then they do a bunch of follow-up, and then it comes back around, then we go on and on. Examples of this are when we talked about patents or voting technology or geek culture, areas where I'm not an expert in any of them and tried to say that up front, but that it changes the, the nature of the show uh, in a strange way. And it does turn into the, you know slow motion discussion slash argument with the entire internet or the audience of the show. So why, why do I do that? Why not stick to topics that I know well? Uh, well, as we already established, it is a single voice podcast and I do have an interest in those topics and I want to discuss them. Uh, and I actually like that slow motion argument with listeners experience for the most part, although I'd call it a discussion, not an argument. I, I actually enjoy that. That's why I do it so much. That's why we had 17 episodes about patents where I just kept talking about it again. It was, I kind of like that. It does kind of split the podcast into two kinds of episodes though. The kind where I know I, the kind where I generally know more about a topic than most of the audience and the kind where I do not. Mm. But I don't like some people like one kind of episode. Some people like the other. Some people like hearing, you know, me talk about my Mac OS 10 review where I've, you know, already thought about these issues and researched them and know about them ahead of time and have written about them. And then I'm just clarifying that people like those things or I talk about a topic that I know about, like programming languages or, you know, file systems or something like that. And other people like the episodes where I, are, that are more open ended, where I'm talking about something that there aren't as many hard and fast things. And I don't even know all of the facts or background like patents or, you know, geek culture or something. Some people like those types of episodes. Uh, I like to have both kinds of episodes in the podcast, but it does make it so it kind of splits the podcast in two where you never know what you're going to get. If you tune in uh, because you heard like the Walter Isaacson thing where I know tons about Steve Jobs and everything and I can, you know, really dissect that book. You're like, oh, wow, I want to hear this guy talk about the things that he's an expert in. And then I do the next show on patents where I'm an admitted non-expert. You're like, what happened to the show I was listening to? And by the same token, if you're like, oh, I like that geek culture episode and you find out that that's generally not the type of thing that I talk about, those kind of squishy topics. And instead, I do an episode about the details of the Wii U controller. And it's like, well, what happened to the podcast I wanted to listen to? <laughs> right. So you can't, I'm, you know, you can't please everyone with both of those topics. And it does, it, you know, it's like, it's like two podcasts in one. And the people who like one are probably not going to like the other as much. All right. And the final item, again, this is not like the last thing that's wrong with the show. There are many, many, many more things wrong. Oh. And I bet you and the audience can list some on your own. Maybe make your own list. Uh, but this is the one I stopped on because I figured that like, you know, diminishing returns, like I've hit the highlights. The final thing that's wrong with the podcast is it's not a full time job for me. Everything about this show would be improved with more time and effort on my part. I would have more time for preparation instead of just preparing for several hours like I do. It would be prepare and then go back and edit the preparation, which I generally don't have time to do. Like I go from top to bottom, prepare my notes and like that takes several hours and put in the links and that's it. I don't have time to go back again and again and go over it. You know, I could, if I did, I could formulate actual segments. I could try to have more complex segments with more moving parts and more interesting things in them. I could do much better background research on things, but like, you know, there's a limited amount of time I can dedicate to this. Uh, and since it's not my full-time job, I never did learn many of the skills that can help improve a podcast in general, like, you know, proper diction and less mumbling, <laughs> more polished segues between segments, fewer ums and uhs and, all the verbal ticks and saying right with a question mark after every have you, but sentences. have you listened to to the shows that you started out doing you know 90 some episodes back compare yourself to the way you are now you're a pro i mean first of all you were really good in the beginning but you're a total pro now you don't have any of those things uh, I, anymore i've improved but oh, i backslide all the time like uh, you know all i'm saying is that if I, if it was a full-time job i feel confident that i would be better at these things 
And so if you're listening to a podcast for two years, and you're like, geez, this guy's still umming his way through this and it's driving me nuts. And you're right. Like after two years, you would think, wouldn't he be better after two years? But like I'm doing this for a couple of hours a week. It's not a full time job. Like I'm, you know, I'm not going to say I'm not a professional podcaster because I am technically a professional podcaster, but it is not a full time job. And if you listen to podcasts, you know, from like your podcast this is your full time job, right? Like there's a difference in level of polish about you know sort of the on-air skills between these type of things that you know and for podcasts like mine i think there's a difference in terms of the amount of research you can do like listen to you know radio lab or something or uh, uh this american life the amount of work that goes into an episode of this american life is tremendous it's like it's like more work than oh, i've yeah. ever gone into my entire podcast right and then they have like a one hour show out of that huge amount of work that's obviously that's extreme obviously i could never attain that level because they have an entire staff and these people have been doing it for 20 years right but it just goes to show if you had more time to put into the podcast would be better. So I, I think that kind of, you know, separates the podcast world into <laughs> shows that are done by like a staff of super experienced people. And this is their full time job versus shows that are done by some dude for a couple hours a week. And there's a line between those and not saying, you know, I, I enjoy lots of shows that are just like that. Like, you know, Roderick online, for example, I think Roderick just shows up for that one and talks for an hour and that's it. And I right. still love it. But that is a different kind of show than This American Life. And there's a whole range in between, you know, with five by five, five shows spanning the, the spectrum in there. Right. But that is a thing wrong with the show. And so here are my overall comments on the show after going through my list of things that are specifically wrong uh, with it. And again, feel free to make your own list. Feel free to email me your things <laughs> that are wrong with the show. I will not be able to follow up on them, but I will read them. Uh, so I think a common dream among creative people, I don't know how to phrase this, creative people, people who do creative things, people who like create something and put it out there for the world to consume. A, a common dream among a lot of those people is to do something that you're really passionate about. Like whatever it is that you love. I love podcasting. I love painting. I love painting horses. You just want to, you know, I really love painting horses. I'm totally going to do that. You want to do something you're super passionate about. And then also, have millions of people love it and love you for doing it, right? I just did the right thing. I do it all the time. Anyway, <laughs> but in the end, you can only control one part of that dream. You can't really control whether millions of people love horse paintings. You can only control whether you do the thing that you're passionate about. And so Hypercritical as a podcast was, I think, a great reflection of my passions and interests and my personality. Like I did the first part of it. I did the... What are you interested in? Do that thing you're passionate about. Uh, I, and I, you know, I can't control the other half of it of how many people like it. And unfortunately, doing things that were focused on what my interest severely limited the appeal of the program. Yeah. Like, yes, the, the popularity of Hypercritical was also limited by all of the bad things that I just discussed, but they were also limited by the appeal of me as a person. And there's, there's an ethos that embraces this type of phenomenon where you go, Oh, well, I'm too hyper elite for regular people. Oh, this, this podcast is not like, it's, it's way too complicated for, you know, like you, you know that the world is not, most of the world is not going to be interested in, you know, you know, the most of the world is not interested in horse paintings. So you all, oh, you know, these horse paintings are much too sophisticated for you. It is, I'm only, I'm only speaking to the other horse painting aficionados out there. Right. Uh, and I, but I think that's mostly like a preemptive defense against being rejected by the world because you just like, I know you're going to reject me. So let me just go out there and say, oh, I, this is very exclusive. This is, you know, I don't know if that's a hipster thing or whatever, but it, yeah, you can't listen to the show. It's much, much too complicated for you. Right. Uh, so while I acknowledge the effects that my very specific interests 
have on the audience and how deeply you know I care about them. I want to do the opposite. I want to also strive to expand my audience by conveying these passions about horse paintings or whatever in a way that makes other people care about them too. So I, I'm very careful not to say, oh, no one, you know, your mom shouldn't listen to hypercritical, even though I find myself saying that all the time too. But like, I try to, I try to be inclusive and not say, okay, well, I'm really passionate about video game controllers and it's, it's you probably wouldn't haven't heard of it. So, you know, maybe you shouldn't listen to it. I want to do the opposite. I want to successfully have a show that will make some person who doesn't care about a topic care about them. Like some of my favorite feedback is when someone tells me that they never even thought about some topic before, but then they listened to me talk about it for two hours and enjoyed every minute of it. Like I've never played video games before, but I listened to your two hour thing on video game controls and I loved it. Or I don't even use a Mac, but I listened to your Mac OS 10 things and I was really interested in it. That is the best kind of feedback. That's what I'm trying to do with the show. Uh, and so it's me sticking to the thing that I'm passionate about and just totally doing that. And even though I can't control the having millions of people love it part, I can at least not preemptively close myself off by saying that the show is too, too elite for regular people. Uh, so to sum up, I, I think I feel good about the body of work, so to speak, that I'm leaving behind these 100 odd episodes. I think buried among all of the silliness and blabbering and meandering, there was some actual good insight and tech analysis buried in there little nuggets of it. Uh, if I had more time, I could have written a nice Google searchable blog post about every one of those topics. Like the, was the Mark Twain thing. If I had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. <laughs> that's totally true. Like when, when I, that's part of the reason I wanted to do a podcast is because I found I wasn't blogging that much, but I had all these ideas and I'm like, you know what, if I could just sit in front of a microphone and talk about them, yes, there'd be a lot of flab and stuff, but I would get out these one or two or three little insights or tidbits or opinions that I wanted to get out. Right. Uh, and, you know, but I couldn't. So podcasting was perfect to, for that. And podcasting fills a different role, I think, than blogging, you know, tech blogging and the typical te tech blog type of thing where it's not just information and insight and analysis. It's also hopefully entertainment. It could even be like companionship or, you know, auditory comfort of just hearing those voices, hearing that hypercritical theme song start up, you know, mm -hmm. and sometimes it's just background noise. Sometimes it's just when you're cleaning the house, you want to have something on its background noise. And that's, you can't, you can't do that with a blog post, right? Uh, so I, I want to thank all the listeners who wrote in over the years, even if I didn't talk about your feedback on the show. And for the vast majority of it, I did not talk about your feedback on the show because there's only so much room in the show and the follow-up was long enough as it was. Uh, rest assured that I did read it. I want to thank you, Dan, for hounding me until I did the show. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm reminded of Daniel Jalkett's often stated policy of saying yes to things, even when every part of your mind and body is telling you to say no. Mm -hmm. I don't totally agree with that philosophy, but uh, like most good advice, it's, I think it's good in small doses. And this was doing this podcast at all was definitely a case of that. Uh, and I guess finally, before we do the Q and a denouement of this show, uh, I'll, <laughs> I'm trying to put a bow tie on the entire podcast and I will do so by paraphrasing Dickie Fox from the end of a well-known movie. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you can guess the movie. Maybe the audience can as well. Look, I don't have all the answers. To be honest, in this podcast, I've failed as often as I succeeded, but I've loved doing it. I don't regret a single episode, and I wish you my kind of success. Do you, do you really think I won't know that movie? I don't know if you know a movie. I, don't, I, I can never guess what you're going to know. It's, it's one of the, I have, there's like three movies that make me cry. <laughs> Is that one of them? Is That's, it Rudy? The, the first one is Rushmore. The second one is Jerry Maguire. And the third one is uh, It's a Wonderful Life. It's a wonderful life. Oh, man. 
I know. I'm, I'm a sentimental guess, guy. What can I say? I'd have guessed that one. So uh, my guess is that it, this isn't from Rushmore. Your guess is correct. So it must be Jeremy Guire. But I do love Rushmore. All right, Dan. You're on. Okay. Well, we still got two more sponsors. I mean, I st- we still got to pay the bills on this thing. I know. Well, you, well, gotta, not, you haven't turned it in yet. You can't, you know. You have unlimited time. Oh, really? Well, you know. Because we're an hour in. Unlimited with, uh, with scare quotes. <laughs> this is a lot of pressure on me, though, because if I don't ask the questions that the listeners, you know, want really... Oh, they they, they had their chance, then. They yeah. had their chance. All right. So this can just be... I, so you're, you're clearing me of all... Everything's coming up Millhouse, Dan. <laughs> it's like uh, international immunity. Like I'm a, I'm a diplomat. I can do no wrong. Shutterstock.com, where you'll find over 20 million stock photos, vectors, illustrations, video clips. You just go to Shutterstock.com. You'll find the perfect image for your website, ad, publication, whatever creative project you're working on. You can choose between an image pack, monthly subscriptions. There's these enhanced licenses that let you get pretty much anything you want to use for any purpose, like swag and hey, mugs, whatever it is you want to do. They don't charge you more for the extra large files. You can just download any image in any size and you pay only... One price, they don't nickel and dime you for the high res stuff. You go there and you sign up. I mean, if, even if you just want one image, you can just get one image or you can create these light boxes. And there's an iPad app for this too, by the way, which is cool. But the light boxes let you organize things, curate things, share them with your friends, your coworkers. You can do this all for free over at shutterstock.com. When you figure out what you want to buy, use the offer code Dan sent me 12. Dan sent me one, two. And you'll get 30% off any package. Check them out. Shutterstock.com. Southworth in the chat room said, I agree with Dan Benjamin. So far, every criticism that John made has been part of what makes the show great. Oh, that's, that's part of it, though. But like that, if you're going to say what's wrong with the show, this is what's wrong with the show. Like the same things that make the people who really like the show like it repel other people. That's just the nature of the show. It kind of gets back to what I was saying about like doing being true to yourself and doing what you're passionate about and recognizing that maybe that's actually going to cause millions of people not to love you. Right. So, you know, because it's much better to do that than to do the opposite. You know, you want to have both, but if you concentrate on the other side, let me just do things that is going to make the world love me and make this a a wildly popular show. You will not be happy because you won't be doing what it is that you want to do. And it's a luxury to be able to do this, to be able to say, okay, this isn't my full-time job and I can just make the show about what I want and not care that I'm limiting the appeal of the show. But those are things that are, you know, wrong with the show for, from the perspective of most people. All right. I'm ready for your cues. All right. Let me see what I, where I can start. Now, I, some of these questions I believe may have not many, cause I have a whole list here. But there are some questions here that, that I may have sort of asked you, but because this is in many ways a, you know, a montage, if you will, a retrospective, that I would like to ask perhaps some of them again. So yeah, one, answers could have changed, right? Oh, possibly. You know, I think over the one, – one, let, let me make a statement. May I make a statement? I have a prepared statement. You may. Well, I would like to say thanks very much to you uh, for doing – this show, not just for doing it in general, but for doing a hundred episodes of it. You know, we said on the show a few episodes back where you announced that it was coming to an end. And I said, then, you know, you, you never really, you always, well, I'll do, I'll do a few. We'll see what happens. I'll do a few more. We'll see what happens. And uh, it's been such a great run. It's been so much fun for me every single episode. 
doing the show with you. It's, it's done so much for me on a personal level. I know it's done a, a tremendous amount for the folks that have listened in all this time. And, and it's just been something great to, uh, to have on five by five. And thanks to you for doing it. And I'm, I'm glad you said yes. And anytime you want to come back on anything ever, uh, we'll be here. So thanks, John. So what I did in the beginning, night, day, and sleep well, most likely kill you in the morning. <laughs> All right. So here's the question. What is a day in the life like for John Syracuse? You're a regular guy. I don't care. I don't care about your, I'm not going to ask you what your thoughts on techno. Where do you think we'll be headed in 2015 with portable computers? Who cares about that crap? That's a blog post. I want to, I want to get to know the man. What's a day in, what's a day in your life like? As personal as you care to get. It's pretty boring. It's, uh, let, let, let us be the judge of that, please. All right. So I, I wake up usually uh, with the alarm because I have to wake up before the kids wake up, uh, go down and get their breakfast ready and then wake them up, try to give them maximum amount of time in bed because at this point they're both sleepy before they go off to school. Uh, so one by the time I wake them up, their breakfast is ready. Uh, then I have to get both of them down to eat their breakfast, which is not always easy because sometimes they don't want to get out of bed. Uh, then they eat their breakfast and then I go up and, uh, my wife comes down because by this point she showered, she prepares their lunch. I take my shower, I'm out of the shower and then my wife goes off to work and then I get them onto the bus. They go off onto the bus. I eat my breakfast, go into work, spend all day at work around 5 PM, leave work to pick up my kids from school because they're both in the same school now, which is convenient. Uh, pick them up, get all their stuff, bring them back home, make a dinner, feed them dinner, make sure they do their homework and their reading and whatever musical instrument practice or whatever they have. Uh, then get them teeth brushed into bed, bath if it's a bath day. And once they go to sleep, then my time begins. You know about my time, Dan? As a parent to special two, must- Special alone time. Quality uh, alone time. It, no, it's not so much alone as it's adult time. Adult because from from the time I've woken up, my time has not been my time. My time has been my children's time or you know my work's time. Mm-hmm. Now finally, I have time to do something for myself. Usually, what that is is to collapse on the couch and watch a couple television shows, then go to bed. But you know, if it's a day before a show or sometime before a show, I'm doing show prep and then going to bed. Or if I have another podcast, I do that and then go to bed. Uh, occasionally, I will you know. Do fiddle around the computer for a little bit, but in general, I try not to be on the computer at uh, after work. I'm trying to limit the amount of time on the computer. You know, if there's a video game that I'm playing, maybe I would give that game an hour instead mm-hmm. of an hour of television and then go to bed. But I don't play that many games, so that's that's it. That's a typical day. Weekend days are different because they have kids' activities that I'm ferrying them to, but it's similar. What's your commute like? It's like half an hour, forty five minutes with traffic. Like driving, it's not very you're driving far. in your car. Use public transportation. Driving my car, listening to podcasts. Headphones are in the stereo of the car. Uh, if I'm in a car that supports it through the stereo, I do it through the stereo. If I'm not, I do headphones. But you're only allowed to have one headphone in legally in Massachusetts <laughs> while you're driving. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't make a difference. It's just people talking, right? It's not your you're not missing the stereo sound of uh, two voices. As many people were surprised to find out over the course of doing the show, you you do not write. Full-time for Ars Technica? Nope. You do not podcast full-time? I do not. You have a job. You are a software developer in a undisclosed Boston healthcare company. Yep. 
I got a job, job, but, but you, what you call a corporate, corporate, stooge. corporate stooge job. Yep. And you are, do you enjoy your work? I do for the most part. Like I've said on, on past things where people are like, you know, you don't like write full time for our technique. Would you like to like, is that what you'd really want to do? Uh, and same thing with podcasting. And I think the answer is probably no, because like I've been doing, I've been a professional programmer since I graduated college and I don't get tired of that. Like I'm, some people do programming, like, oh, I can't take it anymore. Like I, I don't want to be a programmer anymore. I, I like programming. I like doing it. And it's something that apparently I can do for years on end without getting bored with it because it's just always one interesting problem after another. And there's, you know, interesting problems to be solved. Whereas I think if I did podcasting full time or writing full time, I'm not sure I would have the sort of the same endurance. Now it's hard for me to tell because those two activities are always like the the extras added on to my full time job. So maybe it's just that, you know, I, I feel like I couldn't possibly take being a writer full time because I just know how exhausting it is writing, but I'm doing the writing on top of my normal, you know, 40 right. hour plus job week. So uh, but anyway, I, I, I do enjoy programming. I do like still doing it like, you know, at various times at various jobs I've had different amounts of management responsibility, managing other people. And having done a little bit of that, that does not appeal to me as much as just being a programmer does, right? So uh, maybe I'm limiting my own possible success in my working life by having that opinion, but that's that's what I like doing. I like programming. If all of a sudden you were wealthy beyond your wildest dreams, you had enough for your family, you had enough for your children, your children's children, and there was no more that you could possibly do to get paid to increase that wealth. No matter how hard you worked or what you invested, it was just, it was there, it was done. Would you still work and what would you do? I would probably uh, start a software company. I had had unlimited money of what I would want to do with my free time after spending tremendous amount of free time doing all the things you would normally do, like getting a new house and uh, buying nice cars and all all the other interests that I have. Would you go sit on the beach or anything? That I can't indulge. Well, the new house would be near a beach. Uh, and then the new cars, you know, like that. Oh, as I'm, I'm very interested in cars, but I don't have enough money to buy fancy ones. And I w- I'm very interested in, in uh, living by the beach, but can't afford that. So I would do all that. But once I was done with that, like what would I do with my time? Uh, in addition to, you know, setting up a really fancy entertainment center, lots of cool computers and all that stuff, I would probably start a software company. I would hire other developers and I would myself would be a developer and I would write software for the Mac, for iOS and stuff like that. Uh, whatever kind of software I wanted. I wouldn't care whether it's sold because, Hey, I don't have to worry about money anymore. And I would basically, I would have enough money to sort of find the best programmers that I know and pay them lots of money to create the software applications that I wish uh, existed in the world. Maybe I would get bored of that. But that's, that's my, that's my go-to plan. So, okay. So that's, that's good. Is that, would you say that that's your dream though i mean that's a good thing to to have in the fantasy world but is that your dream would you have a dream is there something that you feel no, my, like my it... dream is just not to have to work <laughs> so you know because i i'm so definitely you, you could people... you could keep the life exactly the way that it is now but just no working well see i'm one of those people like loss aversion is one of my big motivating factors so i'm very conservative you know that's why i got a job job right you know some people have the job job and can't like can't stand it and it drives them nuts. Uh, it doesn't drive me nuts. I apparently have a high tolerance for it. What drives me nuts is, you know, uncertainty and not knowing what comes next. So some people, like, the, the entrepreneurial spirit is, like, where the, you know, the fear and danger of being on your own uh, is outweighed by how agonizing you find working for the man, right? So, like, you or Marco or whatever, like that balance flipped and you said, you know what, uh, even though going out on your own is scary and there's lots of work and, you know, uncertainty and everything, 
it's still way better than what, what I'm going through now. And so you, you switch over and I, that balance would probably never switch for me. The only way it would ever, it would ever switch is if I just didn't have to worry about anything anymore. I've got unlimited money or enough money. So it just might as well be unlimited. And then the loss, the, the aversion to loss motivation goes away. And it's like, all right, well, I don't have to worry about that anymore. So now I can do whatever I want. And then you can try so all sorts of risky things that, that otherwise those same risky things where I do that would drive me nuts and I would be up all night and I would be stressing out and pull my hair out and give myself a heart condition and just, you know, it would not make me happy to do it in the current situation. But if you could remove all of the risk from it, then suddenly it's acceptable. So yeah, that's, since I'm motivated by uh, fear of, by uncertainty and fear of loss, all I want is for that to be taken away, for everything to be taken care of and just the only thing I have to worry about is just, you know, my health and safety and and stuff like that and don't have to worry about money anymore it's like forrest gump and the, the forrest gump movie where he's like uh got the email where he's got the apple stock or whatever and he says yeah. the man told me i wouldn't have to worry about money anymore he's right. like, well it's just one less thing yeah. uh that's it's that one less thing is the one main thing because you know all, all security in the modern uh civilized world traces itself back to money so i'm much more comfortable having a steady paycheck even if it's not a big paycheck you know, rather than the potential huge upside of going in on my own because because of all the associated risk and uncertainty that, that comes with that, that would just stress me out. I'm much more comfortable in my corporate student's job. Okay, I've got more questions for you. We get to do our last sponsor. All right. So this is a cool app if you have kids. I suppose you use it if you don't have kids, but it's kind of geared for, you know, you have a lot of the parent parents who are listeners here, John. I know it. So if you have kids in your home, you probably have like a, a gallery of their artwork, whether it's, you know, drawings that they've done or achievements or report cards, things like that up on the fridge. And eventually, though, you run out of room. And so you want to take something down, but you're like, well, I like that one or he wanted that one still up there. So what do you do? You feel guilty and you take the stuff down. Well, you don't have to do that anymore. They, there is a new iPad app called Infinite Refrigerator. It's for iOS 6. So when your kitchen refrigerator doesn't have any more space, you have one of these in a virtual one. You tap and drag and you create a little magnet on your child's personalized refrigerator and you use the magnet to hang a digital photo of their accomplishment. This is all in the iPad app. It's very cool. You can add a title. You can add a description. You can even have your kid describing the photo of this artwork or whatever it is in their own voice. And unlike your real fridge, the infinite refrigerator keeps this stuff forever. You can click on a calendar that's by the little fridge and you travel through time to see what the fridge looked like last week, last month, last year. You get all those annotations with it. It's really, really cool. And it comes with uh, like a blue fridge. And if you want to unlock other colors, you can do that for a buck 99, but it's free to start out with. It's at infinite Go check it out. Save your kids art. Don't throw stuff out. This is a real problem that, that I didn't think about <laughs> before I was a parent, but now that I am, like they produce a tremendous amount of, of <laughs> yeah. work and and it's all cute wanna, stuff. You don't want to throw it all out, but at a certain point you're like, all right, well, like it's becoming a fire hazard. We have to we have to prune. And so you we do the thing where we take pictures. I mean, I guess that's what this app would be for, but you know, dedicated app, but like you, you know, you weed it out and you're like, oh, okay, well, we've just got to throw stuff out, but at least take a picture of that one because it's cute. And uh, yeah, note what day. And the thing is, you're taking a picture of it sometimes a year after it was done. So then you have to have some other way to note what the date of the thing is and everything. And we only do this when we're pruning. So I should check out this app to see if it will help. Yeah. Uh, now, although I, I wish it was just confined to my fridge because my kid's stuff is just spreading over the walls of the house. It's, <laughs> it's nice, but uh, yeah. Do you, do you have? I don't know how much. How what's the artistic output of your children at this point? Uh, the boy will. Um, 
I mean, he's at school. It seems like they come home with something almost every day. Sometimes they'll work on something for a couple days and you'll get a little bit of space, but he's, he's very into, he's in a stage now where he's starting to get into like remote control cars and building things with uh, Legos, as we say, um, you know, and that kind of stuff now. So the drawing output has decreased, but the shrink eating output has increased. <laughs> so, and those all have magnets attached to them. So they go up on the fridge also. Shrink eatings have magnets? Well, you can, you can, they come with a Stick little block end. of magnet. Yeah. After they've been cooked, you can glue it on. I remember shrink eating. Cause I don't think I ever did them with my kids. I didn't know they still made them. Yeah. They're, they're quite expensive for the two sheets that you get for 15 bucks, but they're, they're a lot of fun. They come with some pencils, draw it in. We're on this. We moved from the SpongeBob as he has matured from SpongeBob to Spider-Man now. So yeah, I, I did Spider-Man shrink eatings as a kid. That yeah. was my big shrinky dink. That was my shrinky dink topic area. What do you think it was in your childhood that set you on the path to become uh, a software developer? Not a computer guy, because we've talked about that plenty on this show, but that set you on the path that said, I would, I would like to develop software for a living, and that's my goal, and that's what makes me happy. Uh, almost nothing in my childhood, because like I was... I was exposed to programming for a very early age. Like when you when you learn computers, quote unquote, that's what they called it in the eighties. You should really learn yeah, computers. Learn computers. Right. I took my parents maybe take a typing course because you're gonna have to know how to type. So I don't know how old I was, maybe eight or nine or ten. There I am on the Apple II, like supposedly learning how to type with some sort of typing program. It didn't take because I'm a bad student and don't pay attention. And again, I took typing on IBM Selectric electric typewriters in high school. Also didn't take, even though they told me the correct way to type. By then it was too late. So I do not type the right way. But that's what, you know, learning computers was. was both that. And then the second thing you learned in the learning computers class besides typing was basic. Hmm. And, you know, uh, 10 print hello, 20 go to 10, you know, the whole nine yards. And so I've been programming since I could use computers. Like on the VIC-20, you could write basic programs and stuff. And when I got the Mac, I had the, uh, what is it? Was it Microsoft Basic? One, whatever one of the basic, whichever basic program came with the little picture on the box that showed showed you how to make a globe out of a bunch of ellipses, you know, horizontal and vertical ones. Uh, Do you yeah, remember that one? Yeah. It was like you had you had a, a window, drawing window on one window, then you had to program the other window. Logo? Yeah, no, it wasn't Logo. I never did the Turtle logo. The only time I saw Logo was on Mr. Wizard. And I looked at it and I said, oh, that's interesting. But And, and HyperCard, I did hyper, HyperCard right. stacks with writing and HyperTalk. But that whole time... If you had asked me, do you want to be a computer programmer for thing, I would say, no, God, no, I hate that. Like, I was only using it as a means to an end. Because you did basic because, like, that's one of the few things you could do with the VIC-20s. You could write your own little basic programs and you could read them from magazines and type them in. But I had just um, some sort of terrible mental barrier. Like, if someone had sat down with me eight years old and explained to me how programming works, I would have been like, oh, like, I need that, that I get it moment. And I did not have that I get it moment. You know, lots of people have those I get it moments like with math where you finally understand algebra, then you finally understand calculus or whatever. You know, at a certain point, you're just like going through the motions. But then when you finally get it, you say, oh, I see. I see what's going on. And then you can go off. I never got that moment with programming. So I would just sit there banging out stuff in, you know, basic or hyper talk or whatever. Didn't didn't, you know, do any C or anything like that uh, when I was a kid, even in high school. Uh, we didn't have any programming classes. I don't think we had like a computer class, but you just used computers and you didn't really program them. So nothing in my childhood made me suspect that I would ever want to be a programming. And I didn't even understand programming. I think I told this story before when uh, I was trying to write myself a text adventure because I was a gamer, computer gamer from early on. And I'm like, oh, text adventure. You know, I know enough basic. I feel like I could write a text adventure. You know, and never, never realizing how hard it is to actually write a text adventure. But uh, 
I was trying to write my, you know, so you find yourself in a field, blah, blah, directions north, south, east, west, and then, you know, get the input and then see what it is that they wrote and tell them if they wrote something that was incorrect, it was incorrect. And then if they wrote something that was correct, bring them to the next room, right? Only I didn't understand what this term in the, the Mac Basic program, go sub, meant. I had no idea what the hell go sub meant. Like, <laughs> go, go into a submarine. What the heck does go sub mean? I didn't know what a subroutine was in 1984. Like, I didn't understand subroutines or functions at all. Uh, that's what I mean about not getting it. And so I tried to write myself a text adventure without using GoSub. And very quickly, you just find yourself 27 levels of conditionals and go-tos deep. And you're like, oh, I don't want to have to repeat all this stuff about, uh, you know, I jump back to the part where it was about invalid input, but then I have to know where to jump back to. And it was like, I didn't understand how you could write a successful program because I didn't understand what subroutines were. And to like, I mean, maybe that maybe that soured me in the idea of programming when I was 10 years old. And that was that was just it. But I just never came and I was never interested in programming. It's only when I went to college and I took my first class in, in C and they, you know, they went over the C programming yeah. language, talked about pointers. But then I was old enough. My brain could understand it. And I said, oh, I get what programming is now. And you just get the whole Turing machine thing of, you know, just understanding variables and addresses and and uh and functions and pointers and just like the whole nine yards. But still, if you'd ask me, what are you going to do when you graduate? I'm like, I don't know. I'm, I'm interested in a whole bunch of things. Like I took computer engineering specifically because I didn't want to take computer science because I didn't like programming. Right. I took computer engineering so I could learn about hardware and stuff. So I learned about how, you know, transistors work and, and how different, uh, you know, microprocessors work and all that stuff. And I'm very interested in that. I was very interested in like the Pentium and the PowerPC and the hardware stuff. And, I, and that, I think that helped my understanding of software. But at a certain point in my undergraduate life, I also learned Unix. And I also learned Perl, which was like a nicer way to get at the Unix underpinnings. Because mm-hmm. by that point, I had been written, I'd written tons of C programs using like, you know, raw sockets calls and C to write my own daemon processes and everything. And that's a pain in your butt, right? And then Perl is like, oh, I can, you know, write a, a daemon that listens on sockets way easier in, in Perl than I can see. Why would I ever use that C thing? It's practically the same. Perl is like, that C API you've been playing with for two months and making all these programs, you know, you do it over here and never get a segmentation fault again, right? So I did Perl and wrote all these tons and tons, huge amount of uh, software output in, in undergraduate where I'm writing little programs to play games with my friends and, and writing a whole bunch of servers lists on ports. And then the web came out and I'm writing my own CGI scripts on my own little experimental web servers and the whole nine yards. By the time I graduated, I realized I'm spending all of my free time writing software. And so when it came time to say, what are you going to do for your career? Like at that point, I was already employed part time as a web developer. And like, it, you know, it was clear to me, despite all of my best efforts, that what I most liked to do was write programs. Because what did I do with my time? I just spent all my time writing programs. And so that's what I decided to do as my career. And I think that was a good choice. But nothing in my childhood made me think that this would ever be what I wanted to do, simply because I just didn't understand programming and was never taught it and never learned it. So I think it was, I would call myself a late bloomer in terms of programming. And I try to think of like, in some ways I like it. In some ways I like that like my childhood was free from the thing that I would eventually do as a profession. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, if I had been like most computer nerds and actually finally actually grokked programming when I was 12, instead of just not totally getting it when I was 10 and, and setting it aside, I would have written a lot of programs in my youth that I didn't. Terrible programs, but I would have. <laughs> okay, so here... It's a couple other questions I still have left. Can we go, go a little bit more? You can. Okay. Let me see which one next. All right. If you could change something about yourself, 
What would what would you change? Lifespan. That's an easy answer. Some people say they don't want to live forever because they think it would be boring. I'm not one of those people. Uh, maybe being immortal would be too much, but pretty close to it. I'd go. I'd go basically until the Earth is destroyed. If you could set my lifespan right before the Earth becomes uninhabitable, I'd be happy with that. You wouldn't mind seeing all of your loved ones die. Would, multiple generations it. of loved ones die. I would mind it, but that that may happen now anyway. I mean, you never know. Yeah, tomorrow will bring you know. But I, I would that's be okay true. with that because I understand that that's just something that happens. You know, it's like but you just deactivate your motion ship during that time. Turn no, it back just, on. Later. You know, if if you are given near immortality, that's that's the price, and I would be willing to pay that price because I like being alive. And healthy, obviously. You don't want to be like alive and then, you know, in terrible pain and decrepit, right? Yeah. Is that not the answer you were looking for? I, I'm happy with any answer you give me. Yeah, I don't know. I hear, usually when people ask that question, they're like, you know, I wish I was taller. I wish I was more handsome. And like most of those things, a lot of those things where people asking about something you don't like about yourself that you would change. I, I was thinking you were going like to say you'd get rid of your RSI or something, but I suppose if you were li- going to live forever, eventually the technology will catch up to that. So you covered yeah, that like, answer. RSI is a that goes that goes to health. Like basically, what I was going through was you know health because despite the fact that I am generally healthy, I, as I get older, I get a greater and greater appreciation for how important your health is, and I can appreciate being healthy and how just terrible it is. If, right. You know, the stupid saying if you don't have your health, but that is. That saying will sound stupid to you until you are about 30-something years old. Right. And then suddenly it will not sound stupid at all. <laughs> and then you will realize how dumb you were before to dismiss that saying. Right. And so that's what I'm basically asking for. Because all the other things about changing, like, your personality or other parts of yourself, like, that would be changing who you are. Mm. And that would that's one of those, like, cautionary tales where if you could be, uh, you know, 10 times more personable and funny, would you be the same person anymore? Would you feel like you're the same person or it's like a Twilight Zone episode, but you'd ask for something. And then later on the end of the episode, the person would realize they're not who they were before. And that would be sad for the people watching. But the person who was there wouldn't know it. And yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't ask for it. It's too late. It's too late for me now to be any of those anything that I'm not. All right. Um, hmm. OK, here's one for you. I think I know the answer. You can meet anyone alive or dead. Who would it be? That's not the same as the, the when the fans ask if you ask one person a question. I pulled no. out Jonathan Colton, but if I can meet anyone alive or dead, meet them and and I I will say ha, spend a day with them. Yeah, and in a way that they would they would it wouldn't be like a day and they'd be like, all right, you know, I got meetings, but like a day where you would have quality time and they would reciprocate your interest. Would they go back to being dead after that? Or afterwards, just like in AI. Yeah, I I mean I'm gonna go with the obvious answer that you think I'm gonna say. So I would pick Steve, Steve Jobs, Jobs, I guess. Yeah. And the thing is, I at the I, at the end of that, I would expect to be angry and disappointed, but I would have to do it. Like that's that's the answer. If I, I'd bring him back to life, I'd spend a day talking with him, most likely yelling at him, because it, like despite all that I've read and and know about this person, he's a fascinating character who I still feel like I don't really really know. Like it's one of those people where it seems like there was a private side of him that even the people who are close to him didn't, you know, maybe his wife and his really closest friends or whatever, but certainly not just random Joe Mac user doesn't know about. So yeah, that's what I would pick. 
I would, uh, I, I wanted, I would want him to stay alive afterward because I don't want to yell at him about <laughs> Apple and then have him go, have me convince him with my, uh, you know, <laughs> my constant haranguing, bring him around to my side of thinking and then see that play out in changes to Apple. But if he's going to go back to being dead, that kind of puts a damper on that. Okay. So speaking of, of, of being dead and dying, if you were to die and you could come back as any person or thing, what would it be? As any person? Person uh, or thing. You could be a building, I, you'd be a tree, you no, could you be actually, Gandhi. You actually can't be a tree or a person. Uh, no, in, yeah. this, in this you could. Uh, I wouldn't want to come back as an inanimate object because that doesn't sound like any fun. Uh, <laughs> I come back as a person. Huh. I, don't, I don't think there's any specific person. The, pro- the people that we all know, you're expecting me to name a name that the other people... What li- I get, I'm, I'm wondering if there's like a certain life that you would have like would right. you want to so be evil Knievel or something you know have fun yeah, so i'm thinking of like some kind of the, the idea anyone who lives in like a city type culture would want to come back as some like oh I, you know someone who lives who lives in tune with nature and lives off the land and is never touched by all the bad things about civilization and just leaves a happy contented life uh you know with nature and a family and a small community or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that still exists on the earth anymore because it seems like every person and every society everywhere is somehow touched in a bad way by modern society. And so maybe it's better to be in, uh, you know, so I, I would probably have to pick, I would just come back as someone who didn't have to worry about money because my current concern as a the person that I am is worrying about, you know, security and loss and whatever. And for all the downsides of being rich, like oh, money doesn't make you happy and there's many bad things that come with money and you'd have a terrible childhood and, you, and your parents would be all screwed up. Like we all know the the anti-patterns of being rich. We see it in movies. You read about it. We see it in real life. Like terrible things can happen to rich people. But there are also people who were born rich and die rich and who are perfectly nice, well-adjusted, happy people. Uh, so it's, it's hard to say because if you come back as a new person, I wouldn't have the same hangups that I have now. But assuming I had similar hangups, like that's, you know, you're always asking for the life that's different than the one you have now. I would, I would come back as someone who, uh, who doesn't have to worry about the things that I'm most concerned about now. So I'd come back as a rich person. Okay. I have, I have one more question. Uh, but I, I thought of an extra one and I put it to the chat room and, uh, they, they seem to be slightly in favor of me asking the second to last question. And that is, I know that now you're uh, getting really interested in comics, thanks to Merlin. You're starting <laughs> to really read. Not really. I, I'm still only like partially into the few issues, uh, the first issue of the comics that he sent me. Okay. What superpower would you have and why? Uh, this is very telling. I, we are kind of already answered that. Like, is, does it, does near, you immortality, near immortality count uh, as a superpower? I mean, like, I guess... I would go with basically Superman's invulnerability. Like I'm not, I wouldn't pick his flight. I wouldn't pick the heat vision. I wouldn't pick the blowing stuff to to freeze it. And you know, I would go with the, the fact that like basically nothing can besides kryptonite uh, can hurt him. And presumably that leaves I don't know the canon for this. Presumably that leads to very long life. Like if he can't, if he's invulnerable, I guess he still ages because he goes from a teenager to an adult. He seems to age, and he just kind of hits. And you he hit hits like, a certain yeah, point. You hit like maximum handsomeness, and you just stay there. Yeah. What about regeneration, like Wolverine has? Like no, because then you got to keep getting hurt, and then it grows back. Like Superman is just invulnerable, so I'd pick invulnerability, basically. Okay, that's that's my superpower choice. Not bad. All right, here's my last question. All right, this is because you know we have a lot of uh, young listeners. What kind Sorry, of ad- 
as far as I know, what kind of advice would you like to give to a young person who's just starting out, who's been listening to this show, who says, I want to be just like John? Or just advice in general, what you might impart to your own kids, people uh, that, that, that people who are grown up maybe could benefit from. What kind of advice do you have for the listeners? Uh, for kids, I would say don't try to be just like any one person because, you know, the odds of you being so similar to that person that you would be equally happy with that person's life are very slim, right? So there may be aspects of a, of a person or their life that you admire. Like some people might say, I want to be just like Steve Jobs, but I know enough about Steve Jobs to know that I would never want to be just like Steve Jobs because a lot of his life was filled with, you know, misery and pain, you know, of his own doing. I just said that I would like to come back as a rich person, but I would assume that I would be able to handle it better than Steve Jobs did because his <laughs> his life was just filled with problems, personal problems and, you know, wow. how, even just corporate problems and problems with his job and getting kicked out of the company that he founded and, you know, the whole nine yards. So don't, don't, you know, don't try to be like someone that you admire. Just to think about the things that you admire about that person and then harness them to do whatever it is you want to do. Like it's the, uh, the end of my hypercritical article in Ars Technica, I have a little parenthetical thing about it. Yeah. Steve Jobs always wanting to make things just so and uh, pour his entire self into them and make the greatest thing ever. And I said, you know, you can do that in your everyday life. Like, that's the thing you may admire about Steve Jobs. Like, boy, he really cared about making that iMac really awesome or that iPhone or whatever. And he poured himself into it. Well, you can do that with anything. So you can say that I am the Steve Jobs of this sandwich. I'm going to make, mm -hmm. I, I am the person solely in charge of the sandwich and it's going to be insanely great, right? Just for making the sandwich for yourself, right? You know, I, 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 writ small. And then larger is if you are totally into making horse paintings, make the most insanely great horse paintings that you could possibly ever imagine. It's not you being like Steve Jobs because he wasn't into horse painting at all. And maybe the things you need to, to do awesome horse paintings are totally different than... Uh, the things you need to run a successful tech company, but you know, pick the things that you uh, that you uh, aspects of the people that you admire and apply them to whatever it is that you actually want to do. So, whatever it is that you admire about me or the podcast or whatever, decide how any of those things can be applied to your life to make what you want to do better. Don't try to do the same things that I did. Try to do the things that you want to do. I, I don't think I, I would say do not. Most people should not model their <laughs> their lives after me because my life is pretty. Uh, I think it's more aspirational for people to model their lives after you or Marco or someone like that, where, I mean, at the very least, that's more, I don't know, like more Hollywood, more like people aspire to do the amazing thing they don't feel like they can do, like go off on their own, not have a boss, do their own thing. Uh, I mean, I, I admire that as well. I just know, I, I'm just true to myself and understand like that I would not be happy doing that despite how uh, how attractive it is in the abstract. So I guess that's the other lesson is, separate what you find admirable from what you would actually enjoy doing because you may you may find the destination to be awesome like you say oh i, I want to be like marco and like be my own boss and have a hit ios product but maybe you don't like what you have to do to get to that point right you know talk to eight thousand other ios developers and see how they're doing it and just talk to marco about like what he did to get there and what what the work entails on a day-to-day -day basis and maybe that's not what you like maybe you just like the destination and not, and not the journey uh, I don't know. I'm probably babbling at this point. So I don't, I don't have any, I don't have any good solid advice for young listeners listening to me, except for to not try to emulate any other specific person and just, you know, think about, analyze the things you admire about them and find the ones that are applicable to your life and then go with that. 
It's a good answer. That's all, all my questions, man. We did it, Dan. 100 episodes. 100 episodes. Didn't think we'd make it, but we did. Oh, I knew we'd make it. So that's it. That's it. We're done. We are done. So you can, uh, you can follow John on Twitter, Syracusa, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A, no Z. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm Dan Benjamin. You can follow the Hypercritical account on Twitter. And you have a website. You have a blog that you are writing now. What's the URL for that? That's hypercritical.co. Very good. I love that. Because I couldn't get it. Who cares? The CO is better. Someday I may have a .com, but they'll just redirect. So don't worry about it. Less typing. And you can can still follow up if you want with us by going to the contact form, 5x5.tv slash contact slash. And on that page, you can pick hypercritical. I won't take that off. That'll stick around. So that way they can still, you can still email John. He'll have no forum like this to respond, but who knows? He, he may reply, but you still, you're going to read every email, right? I will. I always read every email. I may reply by email. I may, uh, this, not having a podcast to complain about things may motivate me to blog or maybe it won't. I don't know. We'll see. But yeah, keep following the hypercritical account. And, uh, if I do anything else, you'll see it. And of course I'll be on the incomparable and guesting on other various podcasts at various times. So, you know, you'll find me. I'll be out there. All right, John. Well, thanks for awesome 100 episodes. Thank you, Dan. Take care. Bye. Bye.